You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Good morning, Covenant Hope. If you have a Bible, grab it and turn to Genesis chapter 29. Guess my name is Cody, and I'm one of the pastors here and have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and love to do so. We're going to continue in our series, uh, which we have been in the book of Genesis, and we have titled it God's Story of Creation to Restoration. If you're a guest today, we normally walk through books of the Bible together because we want to know what God has to say, uh, not particularly what I have to say. And so this time is preaching where we come to God's word to hear and see what he says to us. And so I want you to follow along in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there should be a black hardcovered Bible in the pew back in front of you and you can grab it and turn to page 24 to follow along with us. If you don't have a Bible, as Pastor Ryan said last week, take this one, please. And we want you to have your own copy of God's word. It's our gift to you. We all have a desire to know someone is watching. We all have a desire to know someone is watching. Now that can be positive or that can be negative. Last night, Ash and I had some friends over and I was grilling uh, some chicken kebabs and uh, Graham was playing outside on the little playground. And every time uh, our, our friends, we were talking and every time we're talking, Graham wanted to come up and say, hey, watch me do this. And so he wanted to run and take off and jump on the a little playground. And so every time, I don't know how many times, uh, probably about 10 times last night, Graham said, hey, watch me, watch me do this. This, There's something sweet about children wanting uh, people to see them and give affirmation of what they're doing. There's also a sense of this in the negative, right? You've heard the phrase, misery loves company. We want people to know that we're struggling. We want people to know that we are in a difficult situation. Now, that is not a bad thing, but we want to know, is someone watching, does someone know what I am going through? Well, here in our passage today, we see very clearly that our God watches and he knows. We know that for a few reasons and the actions that he takes in our passage So if you look down here uh, in this passage, here's what we're going to see the truth of the text this morning. God begins to form the nation of Israel through Leah and Rachel by supernaturally opening their wounds. Now what's important here to understand is we are in a particular moment in time in the story of Israel. And they're hearing this story written down by Moses, revealed by God. And they see these two women. We see these two women, but God is the one who is working. God is the one who is supernaturally opening their wounds. And this is important because it is God, by his word and by his power, does he shape his people. Now, if you are his people, if you have called in the name of Jesus this morning, if you're trying to follow him in obedience and faith, then what should you do? What do you need to know? We can truly believe God knows our difficulty and will meet us there with his covenant love. God knows our difficulty and he will meet us in our difficulty to display his faithful covenant everlasting love to us. Now, if 
If you haven't been with us, let me recap the story up to this point. Jacob is on the run from his brother Esau. He's stolen the blessing from Esau, his older brother. And his mom helps with his dad and sends him off uh, to his uncle Laban. And in that time, in Genesis 28, God reveals himself to Jacob that he is his God and that God will be with him and that God will protect him. And the promise to Abraham, his grandfather, is going to be promised to him. Now he will carry the promise. God is creating a people for himself. He's establishing a kingdom and fulfilling that promise. And so when Jacob gets there uh, to his uncles, we, Pastor Ryan uh, shared with us last week, he gets there and he sees this beautiful woman named Rachel. And so much so that he, he acts and he does some things to impress her. And he strikes a deal with his uncle and says, I want to marry her. And it, uh, the uncle, as Pastor Ryan pointed out last week, that he, he's a smart man. And he said, you work for me for seven years and you can have her. But there was a problem. After seven years, his uncle deceived him and gave him Leah instead of Rachel. Now, there's all kinds of poetic justice here. Jacob was out Jacob. He was deceived by his uncle. And so he works for another seven years for Rachel. And so we saw last week that Leah was the girl that nobody wanted. Laban couldn't marry her off. Jacob wanted Rachel instead. But, but Jacob was permitted to marry both of them. And as we've already seen, I wonder how that's going to turn out for them. Not very good. And so here, Moses, what he does is he slows way down. I mean, we, Moses takes chunks of, of time. Think about the creation narrative in chapter 1 and 2. Think about all the genealogies, how much time has spanned it. But what Moses does is he slows way down and he wants to show you this is what God is doing. The Lord saw and remembered and opened these two women's wounds. It is, it is God's seeing and remembering and his action that bookends this story. That helps us understand what God is doing. This is a supernatural act in history to bring about his promises of restoration to the world. And now this is the backdrop. The ongoing conflict between Rachel and Leah. It's the first time we've seen conflict from sisters, but we've seen plenty of conflict in families between brothers and Sons and fathers. Sin continues to destroy God's people. We see their competition. We see their use of other women and servants. We, we see lots of conflict, but God is faithful to continue to work out his promises. And so this morning, I want us to focus on God. What is God doing? Because it can be easy to lose track of what he's doing in these stories. Now, these main characters, Leah and Rachel, they are important. And they're the setting for God to work and to show us his love and his care and his concern for our lives. God is intimately involved in the details of our lives. God is intimately involved in the details of our lives. Church, let me be really honest. This is one of the things that I struggle with most. To believe that God cares, and so much so that he cares that he's involved in the details of our lives, of your life. Our God knows. 
I know that some of you this morning are going through extreme difficulty, hardship, and pain. I know that some of you are going to identify with Leah. I know that some of you are going to identify with Rachel. Some of you might say, I am lonely. I am struggling. I feel like I'm not being heard by God. What is God doing? You desire for your family to be restored. Some of you you are single and desire to be married. Some of you feel unwanted by your parents. Some of you are unwanted by your children. So what can we do this morning? Church, I want you to rest in the fact that our God knows your difficulty. We can believe that. We can know that our God knows He sees. And so today I want to show you three reasons that we know, that we can believe that our God knows our difficulty. He sees, he hears, and he remembers. So our first reason this morning, God sees our hardship. Now as we pick back up in the story, I want you to notice a couple things here when we look back in verse 31 of chapter 29. First notice, Leah She demonstrates faith, but secondly, she is also neglected by her father and by her husband. Don't miss what the Lord does in her situation. Look there at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was neglected, he opened her womb, but Rachel wasn't able to conceive. The Lord was aware of Leah's struggle. In the same way that God saw Hagar in the wilderness, God sees Leah in her difficulty. It is the Lord who takes action It's the Lord who responds to what sin has done. It's the Lord that comes to Leah in her time of isolation from Jacob's love and the love of her family. In the midst of this horrible situation, her dad has used her to one-up Jacob. Her husband didn't want her, and so he marries another woman. The Lord acts and acts for Leah's good. And this is the only passage in the Bible that this, the way this is written, that the Lord opened her womb. It's the only place that I'm aware of. This is a supernatural act by God. Verse 32, Leah conceived and gave birth to a son and named him Reuben. For she said, the Lord has seen my affliction. Surely my husband will love me now. And Verse 33, she conceived again and gave birth to a son and said, The Lord heard me and I am neglected and has given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. And she conceived again, gave birth to a son and said, At last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne three sons for him. And therefore he was named Levi. And she conceived again, gave birth to a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. Then Leah stopped having children. Now notice, when the Lord opens her womb, she begins to have children. And during this time, names meant something. These names tell of Leah's faith, but they also tell of her great pain. Look look there at, at the names. Difficulty and neglect. Reuben means my husband will see me. He will notice me. He will care for me. And maybe since I've had a son, then he will actually look at me with love. Simeon means that the Lord has heard. And because of her neglect, maybe she believes that because now I have two sons, my husband will listen to me. 
Levi. It means to be attached. In the Old Testament, it has this idea of making a vow. Right, so a vow to be married, that, that, that Jacob would live up to what he said to her. That he would be her husband. That he wouldn't leave. Maybe now she will be loved. These three names speak of Leah's great pain that she felt deep in her soul. God knew even when he opened her womb that the pain would be displayed in these children. But in the midst of that pain, God once again allows her to have a fourth son. This time, though, she named him Judah. Instead of worrying if her husband would love her, if, instead of Jacob knowing that he cares for her or that she would, she would be received by him, she says, it doesn't matter. I'm concerned with the Lord. Jacob means to praise. I'm going to praise God. I'm going to praise Yahweh. Nothing to do with her pain, nothing to do with her difficulty. Judah was the consolation of an unloved wife. Are you willing to praise God in the midst of your hardship? Are you willing to praise God in the midst of your difficulty? Even if the situation never changes, are we willing to praise God? Because the truth is God sees you in your hardship. He sees what is happening to you. He knows what's going on, but is he enough? Is he enough for us? Let's continue in verse 1 of chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she envied her sister. Now we see the sin of others, and we see the sin of both Leah and Rachel begin to create this competition. Now, why would this be such a big deal? I know some of our ladies in our church have struggled to have children, and we know that God has answered some of those prayers. This is difficult because when, we, when, when our ladies, when our wives want children, this is a good desire. It's good and right for, for women to want to have children. But the effects of sin have devastated the world and particularly even our bodies and makes it physically, emotionally, and spiritually difficult to have children. But here, during Leah's and Rachel's lifetime, childbearing was extremely important. Right? It was tied to a woman's worth. Culturally, if you couldn't have children, you were basically dead. Barrenness is death in this time. So what does Rachel do? She goes to her husband Jacob, give me sons or I will die. She doesn't have the power to change it. So she goes to her husband, but he doesn't have the power to change it. Jacob became angry with Rachel and said, am I in the place of God? He has withheld offspring from you. Now Jacob's response is not one of a loving husband at all. But there is some truth to it. We often want to be in God's place, determining when our hardships are going to end. We must check our motives in our hardships. Is God enough for me? This personal hardship and cultural tension will now be played out in the lives of both Leah and Rachel. Look at verse 3. Then she said, here's my maid Bilhah. Go and sleep with her and she'll build children with for me so that through her I too can build a family. We've seen this before. Sarah gives Abraham, the grandparents, give Abraham Hagar and she said the exact same phrase. I can build a family through her. 
Jacob's completely passive in the narrative. He doesn't step up. He doesn't lead. He doesn't care. The same sin that happened in the garden happens now in the life of Jacob and Rachel. His own sin is the soil of Leah and Rachel's competition. And it's where it grows. Verse 4, so Rachel gave her slave Bilhah to Jacob as a wife and he slept with her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God has vindicated me. Yes, he has heard me and given me a son. So she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, in my wrestlings with God, I have wrestled my sister and won. And she named him Naphtali. But notice these names have nothing to do with God or at least nothing to do with what he's done. Not in the positive. Rachel's names for these sons are a picture of her success over Leah, her competition. She has won. So what what happens? We have Leah who who has said, I'm going to praise the Lord. But when she sees Rachel having children, look at verse 9. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her slave Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. When Leah recognized that her sister was having children for Jacob... She fell back into this, I'm tr- I've, got, I've got to step up. I've got, I've got to do this so that Jacob will love me. How easy is it to fall into the sin of comparison? We look at somebody else and think, you know, I've got to live up to that. Or, or why don't I have that? Ladies, I know in our culture, in our time, at every turn it tries to compare you with other women how you look, what your life is like, what your social media looks like, how, how your kids act, what your family looks like. Did you go to enough school? Do you have the best job? Ladies, it's, it's extremely difficult to live in America in the 21st century because people think that the, everybody else wants to know how perfect their lives are when in fact that's a lie. It's just a lie. And the enemy wants us to believe, they want, they want us to compare ourselves to other people when we think that their lives are perfect. Guys, we're no different. We compare ourselves, we look at the money and the name and the status, the job. Well, why don't I have that job? When we compare ourselves to others, we miss God's kindness. That God's, God is kind to give any gift to anybody and or to us. But when we compare ourselves, we basically tell God, that's not good enough. And so the cycle continues. Look at verse 10. Leah's slave, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, what good fortune. And she named him Gad. And when Leah's servant, Zilpah, bore Jacob a second son, Leah said, I am happy that women call me happy. Other women look at me and I've got six sons and so they know I'm happy. So she named him Asher. In the midst of the hardship and the competition, God sees the difficulty and responds. It's God who is kind. In the midst of warped motivations, in the midst of all kinds of sin, God is still gracious and kind to give children, to give good gifts. We can truly believe God knows our difficulty and that he will meet us there with his covenant love. Why? Because he sees our hardship. What's the second reason? What's the second reason we can know that God God knows? God hears our heartache. God hears our heartache. We now come to a very interesting, and to be honest, an odd story. But if you miss what's going on, you miss what God is doing. If you miss what he's doing, then you miss the whole point. 
The competition of the sisters now continues. And so let's pick up in verse 14. Reuben, firstborn son, he's probably around seven or eight years old, went out during the wheat harvest and found some mandrakes in the field. And when he brought them to his mother Leah, now this was a gift. Yeah, think about when, you know, when a child goes and gets flowers outside and brings them in and says, Mommy, look at the flowers I have gotten. Now, these were more important than even his flowers uh, from a field. Why? Why? Look at it. Rachel asked, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. I, I don't really know what mandrakes are, but they're important here in the story. Right? Like, look, in the time, their time and place, mandrakes were believed to have fertility properties. This was superstition. This was junk science. Rachel doesn't have faith. But look at verse 15. But Leah replied to her, Isn't it enough that you have taken my husband? See the pain in her heart. Now you also want to take my son's mandrakes? Well then, Rachel said, he can sleep with you tonight. In exchange for your son's mandrakes. So the sisters strike a deal. Rachel gets the mandrakes. Leah gets the husband. Verse 16, when Jacob came in from the field that evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you're coming with me. I have hired you with your son's mandrakes. So Jacob slept with her that night. But here's the thing. With all this, you know, they think that these things are going to help them. The exchange actually didn't give the women anything that they desired. Right? Leah would never obtain the level of intimacy that she wanted with Jacob. And the mandrakes were not going to make Rachel have children. Look at how God acts in verse 17. God listened to Leah. And she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. God hears Leah. God hears our heartache. Even though Rachel's servant hadn't bore any children in a while, in years the Rachel had the mandrake, she had the fertility drug, God gives Leah a son. These sons are a supernatural event that only God can do. Not due to anything other than God himself. Church, what are you putting your faith in? What are you putting your hope in to, to satisfy your loneliness, your anxiety, your neglect, your strife, your conflict with your family? What what? Are you putting your hope in? Because those things will ultimately fail you. Rachel didn't have children because the mandrakes didn't do anything. It's God who gives life. It's God who gives blessing. It's God who gives good gifts. And he's the one who hears us. Verse 18, Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving me my servant to my husband, and she named him Iskar. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. God has given me good, a good gift, Leah said. This time my husband will honor me because I've borne him six sons. And she named him Zubalin. And later Leah born a daughter and named her Dinah. So Leah has more children. She's now had six sons and one daughter, seven children. This is a good number. Although Moses is not saying that everything they did in the story was right, absolutely not. We've already, we already see this here. But what God is doing is in the midst of brokenness and sin and horrific pain and horrific suffering, God is kind and he, and he, and he sees, he hears our heartache. 
We can truly believe that God knows our difficulty, that he's going to show us his love. Why? Because he hears our heartache. This brings us to our third reason that God knows. God remembers our humiliation. God remembers our humiliation. Now, I want us to consider Rachel for just a moment. I know that we've looked at Leah most of the passage and they've been pitted against each other as we should have looked at Leah. But I think it would be wrong for us not to consider her in the story, that is Rachel. Consider her situation. Rachel grew up the wanted one. She was the one that everybody wanted. She was the pretty one. She, she had everything. She had her father's love. If you're going to describe it in today's terms, she's probably a brat, if we're just honest about it. She hasn't had to work for anything. And when we even see this through the passage, right, she's envious of her sister Leah. Maybe for the first time in her life, Leah has a spotlight. And Rachel cannot take it. She's not celebrating with her sister. She's not praising God for the, his gift of children to her sister. No, she is envious. And she's been humiliated. She can't have children. Her dad and our sister can have children. She is maybe at her lowest point in her life. But with all of this, at the end of the day, she was also used by her father and her dad's schemes. There was a man who wanted to marry her, but he was fooled into marrying her sister. I've said this before. No one in these stories are without sin. No one. But what we do know is look at the effect of sin. Sin has totally wrecked these women's lives. And they are the ones caught in the middle. And let me be very clear. You may think that the sin that you're in doesn't impact anybody, but it is having consequences all around you. It's just blinding you to it. Our God knows. He, he, he hears. He remembers. He's working in the situation. But we often think that our sin, it's, it's not hurting anybody. In church, we fight sin not to try to be saved, but because we're fighting sin so that we can help other people see God work. Because sin wants to deceive us and wants to make us think that God doesn't care and make us think that God doesn't know and make us think that people are better than others. That's what sin does. And so Rachel, at her lowest point, what does God do? Look at verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. The Lord intervenes on her behalf. Maybe she's in a place to finally trust the Lord. God is remembering. It's important, right? God remembers Israel when they are in Egypt. Remember, they are hearing this story. They, when they hear that word, the Lord remembered, they remember being remembered in Egypt. And they identify now with Rachel. God delivers his people in, through their humiliation. Look at verse 23. She conceived and bore a son. And she said, God has taken away my disgrace. God has taken away my humiliation. God provides a son to the favorite wife. God, we see here, dispenses his blessing in sovereign wisdom, justice, and compassion. God does not bless according to our standards. Are you okay with that? 
Are you okay with that? Are you okay that God blesses even the brats in this world? Are you okay when God blesses people with plenty? Are you okay when God's blessing looks disproportionate in this life? Because he is the one who's in control and he's the one who's sovereign. Now, if you are one of those people that seems to always win the bingo games and always gets the prizes and calls in and gets the stuff, like if you're that kind of person, steward your blessing for others. But if you're the person that never gets it, always struggling, always in hardship, be careful to become envious of other people because they're not, they're not the source of your pain. The sin in this world is the source of your pain. And it is what separated you from God. But God is the one who shows his kindness and his blessing to people no matter what their situations are. Now here's the problem. I don't think Rachel learns. She gets a son. I don't, I don't think she learns. Look there at verse 24. She named him Joseph. And we know him. We're going to study him for a while and soon coming up. And said, may the Lord add another son to me. Rachel literally names her first son, Joseph. Add more. Increase more. Give me more sons. She's still competing with her sister. She still wants the blessing more than she wants God. And when we desire the blessing more than we desire the blesser, then we miss God's kindness. We're only going to want more. Nothing is going to satisfy us. And we're going to see this in a few weeks. Rachel gets that second son. And she dies in labor. God gives her what she wants. And so church, let let us be careful to not want more than God has decided to bless with. God has done right by Rachel by giving her one son. He's not going to sin against her. He's done right by her. Even when she was unfaithful and ungrateful. Despite the competition, the strife, and the difficulty, God sees, he hears, and he remembers his people. God is working even when we don't know it, even when we don't see it, even when our difficulty is too much to bear. As we take a step back from this story, we can believe that our God knows our difficulty and that he will meet us there in our difficulty. In your circumstance right now, God's love will meet you there. God is for his people. Even when our motives are wrong, even when we desire his blessing more than we desire him, God is working for our good. But let me be very clear. If God hasn't blessed, if you're asking for something, that doesn't mean that God doesn't love you and doesn't know. He knows. He knows what's best. I don't give my children cake at 9 o'clock at night because I know it's going to be bad for them the next day. Our God is good and he knows what's best for us. So don't assume you know better than God. That's a hard place to be. But see, understand that, that this good that God was working wasn't just for them. This blessing wasn't just for Leah and Rachel. It wasn't individualistic and it wasn't just personal. We see a God who is forming a nation. Don't forget, in the midst of this very personal difficulty, God is continuing his plan of redemption 
plan of restoration for the world. His covenant love demands that. Both of these women are vindicated by their children. Think of Rachel. Her son Joseph is the one who becomes second in command in Egypt. Their children show that God knows what he's doing. Even though we have two sisters fighting, God is forming the 12 tribes of Israel. God doesn't just have an eye on our pain and suffering. He has an eye towards a plan that will end all pain and suffering. God does this through his people Israel. These are the mothers of the tribes of Israel. And these 12 tribes make up God's people. It is from Israel that the Messiah will be born. And notice all the way back up in verse 35 of chapter 29. That time that Leah said, I'm not going to worry about anything else. I'm going to praise God. Judah, this is the tribe. This is the line of the Messiah. Judah is the son who will be praised Judah is the one who will have the Messiah reign. Judah is from the unwanted wife. And we get a savior that, if we're honest, without God's intervention in our lives, that we didn't want. It is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who steps into our difficulty himself. He literally puts on human flesh God the Father sent him into the world to restore it to the way he intended it to be. And he does that by Jesus stepping into our difficulty. See, the gospel says that Jesus was born of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he lived a perfect life, not because he was some good teacher, not because he was some good prophet, because he is God himself, Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus lives that perfect life, but he's handed over by the Jews to the Romans to be killed, and he's crucified, and he dies. And Paul writes that Jesus dies in our place for our sin, the sin that you and I have, the sin that muddies up and and makes our lives miserable. That's what Jesus does. But he didn't stay dead. He was raised in new life, demonstrating his power over sin and death, the true and final and greatest enemy that we have. Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is the one who who knows our difficulties so much so that he put on flesh. He felt pain and loss. He lost his best friend to death. He had his friends betray him and turn their backs on him. Jesus knows your difficulty. He knows how it feels. In the midst of all that, though, he was the one that could obey because we couldn't. And he submitted his life to die on the cross for you and me. He is our great high priest because he knows our difficulty, our struggles, our loneliness, our conflicts, our depression, our anxiety. Jesus knows what the world places on us and what sin does in us. But Jesus, being sinless and fully God, conquered sin and death. God has proven once and for all that he knows our difficulty and that he will not leave us in it. It doesn't mean that for however long we get to live in this life that it's going to be easy or that it's just everything's going to be great or we're going to get all these blessings or we're going to get it figured out. No, it doesn't mean that at all. 
What it means is that when Jesus returns, whether now, next year, 500, 5,000 years from now, whenever that is, Jesus will right the wrongs of everything. And he will make a world where we get to be with him and that we get to experience God's kindness and blessing forever. There will be no more competition. There's no more difficulty. There's no more pain. That's what Jesus is doing. And he intercedes on your behalf. This is our great high priest who comes from the line of Judah, who comes from Leah, who comes from a family of sinners to save sinners like us. Would you pray with me? God, I ask today that we would be comforted in our difficulty, not because it can, it's going to change, but because you know our difficulty. You see it. You listen to us. You remember us. And so, God, would we be comforted by that? Not comforted by that it's going to change, but comforted by the fact that you sent your own son into the sinful mess of this world. God, would you help us walk in faith by the power of your spirit in whatever we may face. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. God, we ask these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of his spirit. Amen.